just about to sneeze. Sorry. Welcome to Save Me From My Shelf, a literature podcast where we take classic tomes off their pedestal to make you less anxious about reading them. Our jokes come from a place of love and for a specific teaching purpose. However, if you think that making fun of great literature and maybe some mild swearing is offensive, this might not be the podcast for you. Hello, you are listening to Save Me From My Shelf. Apples and pears over here is Daniel. Hello, Daniel. Straight from the hood over there is, do they say straight out of the hood is Abbey? (laughs) Short for neighborhood. So Daniel, do we have any letters or recommendations today? Yes. Probably one of the most disturbing letters we've ever received. All right, we had an unknown correspondent. I'm very much enjoying the podcast. I'd resisted the urge to make these requests, but you've popped the seal on translated works. So I've given in. How about Don Quixote? That is on our short list. We've talked about that for a potential text coming up. The short list of very long books. (laughs) It's a barnstormer and lol. Funny. Laugh out loud funny. Is it? It better be. I've, laugh out loud funny. I laughed out loud when I read it. Well, I haven't read it in years. You better be right. There's that bit with that funny nose. No memory of that whatsoever. Okay, well. Another, and this is no mere second choice by any means. <laughs> That's funny. How about The Tale of Genji? I read that on holiday a few years ago. Good way of ruining a holiday. Uh, it, uh, it was very boring. <laughs> But I could imagine reading it for the purposes of recapping it would change my opinion, because I remember a lot happened. It's rollicking good, this person says. Oh dear, I'm sorry, anonymous person. Yeah, can you go on, please be nice. I'd be more than happy to hear a recap of these two, and we'll surely laugh at the funny things you have to say about them. We've got it in writing. There's a, there's a promise. <laughs> that's, so that's the first half, that's a standard letter. Very nice. Second half takes a disturbing turn. I'm hoping it's just a joke, if it's true, this is going to completely change my worldview about everything. It's really quite horrifying if it's true. On another point, my friend's great-gran... That's a pretty reliable <laughs> witness. My friend's great-gran once let slip, you know, under torture, uh, presumably, <laughs> that Shakespeare's works... Yeah, we're back on the Shakespeare authorship's controversy. My friend's great-gran once let slip that Shakespeare's works and all reference <laughs> to them prior to the year 1860 are the product of a sensational and quite incredible PR push launched by Warwickshire County Council <laughs> in the early 1860s. All trace of which, the meeting minutes and so forth, was lost in the Great Warwick Castle Fire of the 3rd of December, 1871. She used to work the tickets there, so she knows <laughs> all around that stuff. I think this is probably some of the most disturbing correspondence we've ever received. I... If, tr- if true, if not true, it's still disturbing. If true, fully horrifying. That is the funniest letter. I love this so much. I, I mean, we, we solicited for your best Shakespeare conspiracy theories, and friend, you delivered... I want to I want to bathe in these conspiracy theories. I want to roll around on a bed full of them. 
the thing is, like, I've got no way of confirming this is true or not. As our anonymous correspondent says, it was all burnt. All the evidence was burnt. But just in my heart of hearts, it feels true. <laughs> That's what I'm so just... I've been to Warwick Castle and I, you know, I could see them making that sort of stuff up because there's loads of sort of fake historical stuff there. I do have a connection in Warwickshire County Council. So I'll have to investigate if it's true that they really do. Maybe there are some secret records somewhere. We also have corrections, right? I do have one correction from a few episodes ago. I had talked about a Hamlet quotation, so I, I had said there was a bit that was like Lady Macbeth's unpack my heart with words speech. Lady Macbeth didn't say that. In fact, Hamlet did. So it was so like that bit <laughs> that he actually said it. I What I was confusing in my head was that bit with Lady Macbeth's, what is it, to look like the time beguile the time, uh, look like the innocent flower but be the serpent under it. I can so, confirm that this has got no prompts that was completely off the cuff that quoting well done thank you carry on um but i just uh, thematically because they are so similar i confuse them in my head sorry for shakespeare scholars who are wincing that i mixed up what hamlet said in lady macbeth so yes my knowledge of the bard might be a little shallow Matt but does. in my defense i am a beautiful idiot so but the shakespeare scholars have been wasting their time anyway because it's all just some <laughs> you know tourist literature <laughs> Why would Warwickshire County Council in the 1860s want to do a PR? This is what that's, I want to know. That's the genius of it. That's Anonymous, why it must be true. Anonymous, please write back in and tell... I mean, we need more information, friend. Why? Why would they do this? Why wouldn't they do this? I bet... I'm just thinking now. I bet it was something to do with the incorporation of the city of Birmingham. Warwickshire County Council wanted to stop it. Because mm. Birmingham used to be part of Warwickshire, didn't it? I bet they were worried about losing territory, and so they thought this would bolster oh, their claims. Shit. It goes all the way to the top. Yeah, it goes all the way to Joseph Chamberlain. So now for our update on our corporate mandated friendship exercise. So at the beginning of this season, I revealed that Daniel and I really hate each other in real life. Corporate didn't like it, so they're making us do all these little exercises in our spare time to become real friends. This week, they made us do one of those body swap things where we wished on a shooting star at the same time. Really don't like the height differential. I was walking around like a baby colt, too afraid to stand up. No wonder you're miserable all the time. Well, I had a great time. I really got into uh, heroin. Because uh, I thought it's not my body, so I might as well uh, have some fun with it. Oh, that's why I feel like <laughs> shit today. So, Daniel, what is our text today? Picture an island. This island is inhabited by a, an individual who is more than conventionally industrious. He works unceasingly, but he's also very creative, he's an inventor. Through sheer will, grit and determination, he single-handedly invented the first ever novel. <laughs> just, just there on that island. There are loads of, like millions of other people also on this island, just by the way. <laughs> um, it's, it's called Great Britain. We all know and love it. And it's the 18th century. These people enjoyed that first ever novel, but they, you know, they were like, could do with a lot more sex and crime. Couldn't we all? Yes. So our friend, our hero, Daniel Defoe, gave them the present text, Moll Flanders. You had me going. Yeah. That was a good one. Yeah, thank you. So it goes without saying, we're about to spoil this novel for you. The trigger warnings are child abandonment, hanging, incest, suicide, attempted child murder, lots of illness and fevers, 
lots of anti-sex worker and sexist language, so Daniel and I are going to, uh, by necessity, say the word whore occasionally because it's quoted. Apologies for that. There's also a significant amount of sex in this, so gear up for some Save Me From My Shelf After Dark. It, don't expect Fanny Hill. I mean, <laughs> it's not. It's very matter I, of fact. I was talking about the quantity, not the quality yes, of the sex. Yes. It's as sexy as like what, looking at a bedpost covered in notches. That's what I would say. Yeah, yeah. I like yeah. that. So, would you like to do some background, please? Daniel Defoe, real name Daniel Foe. Put the D in to him. Had a bit of class. So he had a pretty mad life, didn't he? He was a pamphleteer, a kind of politico, he was a spy. And then in the kind of latter decades of his life, he became the first English novelist, if indeed you think that Robinson Crusoe was the first ever novel. It's or, debatable. Or was it Pamela? We've yeah. talked about this before. Yeah. Or was it Don Quixote, or if we're talking about it, novels in general? Was it Tale of Genji? Yeah. Within English literature, I think Defoe is you know, definitely in the running, if not in world literature. Daniel Defoe, like his uh, heroine Mole, was jailed in Newgate Prison, but for a satirical pamphlet. It's quite a different portrayal of 18th century England to Pamela, isn't it? Yeah, so if you want to go back to our Pamela episode, even if you don't know that text, I assure you, you will not be disappointed. That is a very wild ride, and it makes for a really interesting comparison with this novel. This is also not quite a picaresque novel, but kinda, so he's clearly working from the picaresque tradition. Picaresque novels tend to follow one protagonist through a loose series of adventures, usually it's about a lovable rogue, and it's not like... Yeah, it's not lovable to me. <laughs> well, yeah, or a rogue, yeah. fine, but it's it's a little loose on cohesive plot, it's more just like, and then they had this adventure. Mm. Mal Sanders has a much more of a tightly knit arc. Yeah. All right, so my uh, bad Cockney accent is locked and loaded. Um, and also my accent coach is on vacation this week, so you're in for a real treat. We open on the voice of Maul Flanders, who narrates her, quote, history and misfortunes. So she's a rogue, a blackguard, a thief and an opportunist, and an all-around wrong, and bless her black heart, and three cheers from all. So she opens by telling us her name is well known at the Old Bailey, famous prison. Uh, courthouse. Ugh, okay, Nougat is the famous prison, and the Old Bailey is the courthouse, what's part of it? And she says that many of her friends have been hanged for their crimes, so they've, quote, gone out of the world by the steps in the string, and she, I like that. Yeah, yeah. She ex and she's always sort of expected to follow suit, basically, when her crimes caught up with her. Paul says, though, that it's the state of England's social welfare programs that made her what she is. In other countries, orphans are tended to and schooled and fed and clothed and taught an honest trade. She had to fend for herself, full all of her twist style, so it's hardly surprising that she fell in with crooks and turned out to be a rot oh rot Maul was even born in prison. So her pregnant mother stole three pieces of linen and got caught, and after a stint in jail where Maul was born, they were separated and her mother was transported to the Americas. Baby Maul. She was passed between a range of people. Eventually, she ends up in Colchester, where she's taken into the care of the parish and fostered by a woman who kind of ran a sort of school where children were taught to read and work. I mean, that's that's your first mistake. Do not educate the plebs. That's why I have refused for all these years to teach you how to read. <laughs> the age of eight, the town magistrates decree that Mole must become a servant. Yeah, that's nice, isn't it? And Mole immediately recognises that this road will lead to drudgery and tearfully implores her guardian not to send her away. 
The Guardian is amused, uh, like all good Guardians <laughs> are, by Mole's tears. Is the girl mad? If you don't want to work, what would you be? A gentlewoman? And that's exactly what young Mole wants to be, even yes, if she doesn't... Bitch. Yeah, of course, yeah, even if she doesn't know what it means. All I understood by being a gentlewoman, Mole says, wants to be able to work for myself. God, people leaving you alone. Who says money can't buy happiness? Mm -hmm. Young Mole's social pretensions make her kind of sort of famous amongst the ladies of the town, and she starts doing odd jobs for them, doesn't she? However, we soon learn that getting above your class will ruin you, because now Mole is not content to live among the other wretches of society anymore. Mala's is now living with the Muckety Mucks as their little pet, and she grows up to be really hot. They say she is, quote, the handsomest woman in Colchester. And I have a little note here that says, insert some joke about Colchester here. I failed to do so. Essex because... girls, that's a thing, isn't it? Oh, you foot Mala. Is that where Colchester is? Unfortunately for Maul, the house she lives in also contains two wealthy sons. So I will say this in an extremely Whoopi Goldberg voice. Maul, you in danger, girl. They were a very promising part. Yeah. Mm, what does that parts? mean? Yeah. Promising as well. <laughs> um. Is that a threat or a promise? <laughs> the elder son who's a noted playboy who's debauched his way through every debutante in a 50-mile radius, then starts flirting with Maul. And his sisters take him to task for that. They're, they're quite protective of Maul, and they also know that he could never marry her because Maul is too poor. Also, this brother just acts like a major creep around her all the time, and he's just like three STDs stacked on top of each other under a trench coat. He is, unfortunately, also very attractive. Ain't that always the way. So, one day when they're home alone together, he catches Maul alone, and he kisses her and says he loves her. So she goes out of her way to say that they Frenched for like 15 solid minutes. They kiss so long that their lips start looking like they spent too long in the bathtub. That's disgusting. Yeah. Why would I include that detail? He then proposes marriage, vaguely, one day, when he gets his own estate, and he convinces Maul that this is sufficient enough of a proposal where she can she can start doing sex stuff with him. He'll definitely marry her. I think she originally says they get to, like, third base. I don't really know. All I do know is that they do it in his sister's bed, which yeah. I am not okay with, because Maul was kind of raised like his adopted yeah. sister. Y'all. In fairness to Maul, she is DTF, and she's like, you know what? This dude is hot, and sex is fun. She jumps into his arms, and she's like, take me anywhere, sailor. Then the older brother starts giving her money, which he disguises as just, oh, just a gift. But really, it's it's clearly for the sex. And the book links really early this idea of sex is labor and a commodity. Well, let's have the line. My color came and went at the sight of the purse, and with the fire of his proposal together, Put in the purse into my bosom. I made no more resistance to him, but let him do just what he pleased and as often as he pleased. Ooh, hello. <laughs> also, is there a creepier image than a dude slipping cash into your cleavage, just a little like boop boop? While you're in your sister's bed. Can we talk about how Mol at this point is known as Mrs. Betty? I just like that she's known as Mrs. Betty. Yeah, they just have a little nickname. Mrs. For her. Betty is so beautiful. <laughs> Why are you Italian? brother. <laughs> so for six straight months, they sneak around, humming careless whisper directly into each other's genitals or however you do sex. I never really learned. Until the younger brother then starts getting a big old dumb crush on Maul. And 
he starts telling the whole family, you know what, I'm going to marry her, I'm serious about it, I don't even care that she is broke as a joke. The family's unimpressed. But this younger brother finally confesses his love to Maul, aka Mrs. Betty. And she's like, you what? Yeah, she's like, oh, I'm confused. <laughs> uh, she doesn't fancy the younger brother, although he can make an honest woman of her, so it's a bit of a sort of... Uh, Dilemma. She's on the horns of a dilemma. That's when you have two lemmas, right? Yeah, very good. She has a kind of nervous breakdown, doesn't she? She spends a lot of time in bed. She stops eating. She gets brain fever. The doctors diagnose her with love. They never really say for whom. They're just like, oh, she clearly must be in love. And everyone's like, great. So the older brother's like, oh, I think probably I should finish things with you. And you should marry my brother. Mal's upset about this. That said though she shortly after that recovers and the older brother convinces her to go along with the plan uh, successfully managing to shift off his whore into the, his brother's arms for a wife wow what a cinderella story yes yeah and the brother comes out looking like a nice guy so that's even more annoying Maul marries the younger brother. We're going to need to include some sort of marriage clacks in here I'm to for that. Track. Yeah. but she still fancies the older brother despite having married the younger brother I committed adultery and incest with him every day in my desires. Mm. So she's boffing the younger brother. She's thinking about the older. That's what's going on there. Boffing. The older brother goes off and marries someone else. Can we also talk yes. about the wedding night? Please. Because... That's what we're all here for. <laughs> Maul and the older brother, her ex-boyfriend, they're slightly concerned that the younger brother is going to be able to tell on their wedding night that Maul isn't a virgin. So the older brother gets the younger brother super drunk on his wedding night. So he kind of passes out and he wakes up in the morning. He's like, did I score? And she's like, oh, you sure did, champ. Oh, yeah. And it's just, it's really... It's grotty, isn't it? Grotty. I think yeah. that's, that's the right word for it. Yeah. So Mal and her husband have two children. We're going to need a child klaxon here as well because there are many children. Yeah. But he dies after five years and she palms her kids off on her in-laws. I have never known anyone to yeet a baby before but that is all she does in this book what does that mean please uh that means sort of toss with disdain like ugh. so mole she's back in the world she's an independent woman she's just inherited 1200 pounds not too bad for those days let's talk about measuring worth oh promo code shelf yeah <laughs> um uh, I looked this up. I'm assuming, because we'll talk about this later on, but it's set in the 17th century. I'm assuming that it's 1650. I don't know why, I just am. So I calculated this 1,000, with the help of uh, measuringworth.com. For uh, all your measuring needs. Uh, 1,200 pounds in 1650 was, in terms of real wages, I'm going to go through all of this. In terms of real wages, so that's the kind of relative cost of a fixed bundle of goods and services bought by an average household. So that's the kind of normal way that we calculate differences in value. That would have been £169,100. No small sum. That's One, a type. 169000 Okay. All right. Yeah. That's, that's, yeah, all right. In terms of labor earnings, so the money, like how much that money was worth in relation to the wage of the average worker, it is... Two million eight hundred fifty-two thousand pounds. So okay. you know, 17th century society was so unequal that this went for more in terms of pay. In terms of relative income, 
So wealth in relation to per capita, don't say per capita GDP, so the economic status of the money, this is worth £5,164,000. And finally, in terms of relative output value, so that's the income in relation to the total output of the economy, so it's kind of influence within society, it is £51,520,000. Daniel, I'm going to need you to bottom line this for me because the rate of inflation will have increased by the time you finish. <laughs> very good, very good. Maul is a hot young widow. She has gotten rid of her boring ass kids, got actually a pretty good chunk of change, brush your hands off, doot doot, next husband, goodbye. It is time to go husband hunting, friend. So she goes into town and gets swept up with a bit of a fast crowd, and she has a bunch of interested dudes, because why wouldn't you, hot, rich, young widow? But none of them are quite rich enough or serious enough about marriage for her. She's learned her lesson, right? She says, quote, I've been tricked once by that cheat called love, but the game was over. I was resolved now to be married or nothing, and to be well married or not at all. Good for you, Anne Boleyn, that shit. And she eventually meets a really nice guy who is a gentleman tradesman. He is a draper. Um, That's the dream, isn't it? The amphibious creature, <laughs> she calls it. The posh, but has a steady job. So she marries him, so that's husband number two, marriage class. We're on two. People are keep keeping score at home. Unfortunately, he is so excited by Maul's small fortune left to her by her first husband that he goes on a huge spending spree. And she's kind of into it. They go, I find this so funny, they go on a holiday to Oxford, which is really remote and exotic for them in Colchester. <laughs> they go to Northampton as well. <laughs> Even, yeah, no offence to the people of Northampton, but it's not nice. <laughs> Unsurprisingly, within two years they are broke and creditors are chasing this guy down. At one point, he actually parkours down a building to escape the creditors, <laughs> and he runs away to France, and Maul never sees him again. Thankfully, Maul has been squirreling away a little bit of money because she kind of sensed that this was the way the wind was blowing. So her situation is pretty bad, but not totally hopeless. So Maul can't get married again because she has a living husband, but he'll never come back to England. And funnily enough, there is zero chat of her making her way to live with him in France. They're just kind of done with each other. They're like, yep, I'll see you on the flip side. So Maul changes her name to Mrs. Flanders. Mm. Hi, diddly-ho, Frauderino. She also reveals in one sentence that she apparently had a baby with this husband, so child claxon, but the baby died, so... Phew. Good. Uh. <laughs> Moving right along, who gives a shit? We're up two husbands and three kids. So Maul runs with a few different crowds attempting to get married again, but it just kind of reaffirms her belief that men will only marry rich women, no matter how ornery or ugly, and make mistresses out of the poor pretty ones. And she gets really angry and misandrist in this section, which I love. So Maul makes a small female network, and she, she gets this one female friend in particular, who's kind of being dicked around by her boyfriend. And Maul says, you know what, just say the word and I will gone girl him for you because I am fed up. You know why I'll do this? Because I've got no friends, no skills, and no money. Just a great pair of honkers and an unstoppable dream to destroy all men. The friend's like, yeah, that sounds pretty good. And so Maul completely ruins this guy's reputation and life by spreading all these really nasty rumors about him until the guy eventually comes crawling back to Maul's friend to beg her to marry him and saying how sorry he is. You and I have talked before about um, how I would love to develop a sort of university module on women's rage. Mm -hmm. And I would include this section, I think, 
So, we get a few more episodes in which Moll and her friend game the marriage market. Moll has a bunch of rumours spread that she is a wealthy widow, and soon the admirers start flocking to her. Diamonds? Yeah, exactly. Well, funny you should say that. One suitor with his diamond ring scratches little love notes on her windows. I uh, would be so pissed off. <laughs> yeah, me too. Yeah, yeah. I just wanted to say the Boghouse Miscellany from the 1730s that's a, a kind of collection of things scratched into windows and like kind of naughty limericks and things. From That's pop- cool. Yes, it is cool. When but, you had this note, I thought this was going to be much more boring, but you're bringing no, the goods it's today. It's really funny, yeah. Uh, it's not just scratched into windows, it's also like drawn on the wall and stuff, but yeah. So, Moll's charmed by this guy, and it turns out he's a wealthy planter from Virginia. So, yeah, she's only attracted him because of his, like, lovely personality and things. Not to do with his wealth? No, no, yeah, I don't don't think she's even really bothered about that. The pair are soon married. Ooh, marriage klaxon. And I'm sure their sex life is just her screaming, put a 20 in my... Well, we're not past the watershed. Plant some cotton in my... No. (laughs) Tobacco. And they head for Virginia. Mole tells us that to give an account of the manner of our voyage, which was long and full of dangers, is out of my way. I kept no journal, neither did my husband. There are storms, there are pirates on this transatlantic <laughs> voyage, but they're not, we don't care about things like that. We, we're really interested in the marriage market. So thank you, Mole, for... Nothing. That. Yeah. Yeah, we saw this in Hamlet, too. This season is... Our exciting pirate adventure has been cut for time. <laughs> exactly, yes. Mole has a pretty comfortable life on the plantation and soon has two babies, two children. Um, Clacks in here. Yes, please. Two of them, please. Uh, yeah, she's having a great time. I wouldn't applaud just yet. Doesn't work out that great. Okay. I'm just going to say here. Things are pretty good in Virginia in general. Brackets if you're white, let's just... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that could be applied to the, the, every A lot of world history. Yeah. <laughs> there are few social pretensions in Virginia. People can reinvent themselves here, even transported criminals. Someone tells her that there's Major Blank. He was an eminent pocket. Pickpocket. Uh, pickpocket. He was an eminent pocket. <laughs> he was an eminent pickpocket. There's Justice Barr, who was a shoplifter. Uh, don't you know? You can start off as a, some kind of crook and end up the president. Of- it's not illegal if you're really good at it. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Yes. Mole gets on very well with her mother-in-law, who was herself once a Newgate bird. I.e. she went to prison. Newgate prison, to be precise. Not the old Bailey, which I've had credit. Well, she went via the old Bailey, because that's the courthouse. Um, <sighs> Jesus! Now her mother-in-law is a respectable and wealthy woman. However... What? Yeah, there's a rub. No, I thought this was the end of the book. No. Mole one day realises that her mother-in-law's life story sounds a little bit familiar. But who else do we know was in Newgate at this stage in the book? that's what Mole's thinking. She starts to get uneasy. (laughs) She asks her mother-in-law what her name is. Because I guess she's been calling her Hey You this entire time. She's there to have (laughs) however many children. Nobody really has names in this book. I don't even know that. Except Mole, who doesn't even really have a name. I came to reflect that this was certainly no more or less than my own mother. F***ing qua. And I had now had two children and was big with another by my own brother and uh, lay with him still every night. So Mole 
she somehow married her half-brother after her mum got transported from Newgate Jail to Virginia. This is the darkest penthouse forum letter. Dear penthouse forum, I never thought it could happen to me, but that takes like a really sad, twisted yeah, turn. Yeah, but in a kind of very boring style. Yeah. <laughs> oh dear. So So she's been fucking her brother. Yes. This is half brother. Half could be oh, just the, oh, that's fine. Could be the top half. Um, <laughs> Moll's beloved husband slash half brother suddenly becomes nauseous to her, but she can't bring herself to reveal the horrible truth to him, especially because it would invalidate their marriage and render their children illegitimate. So they just kind of start to grow estranged. Yeah. So Moll can't figure out what to do. So she finally reveals her secret to. The old finger and thumb. It's Cockney rhyming slang from Mom. <laughs> Virginian rhyming slang, don't you know? <laughs> don't be mad at me, Daniel, because I'm bringing Mall to life. Yes, thank you. So the mum is like, well, darling, you f***ed your way into this mess and you can f*** your way out of it. Just stay quiet, enjoy your marriage, have fun being rich. Now, Mall, as, as it would be with many of us, thinks that this is just the giddy limit. So she goes on a sex strike for the next three years and refuses to tell her husband why and unsurprisingly this has a negative effect on their marriage so her, her brother husband is like what is happening shouldn't we be rolling around on a bed full of cash crops and human chattel without a care in the world madam i do declare that i am owed some uh, conjugal <laughs> conjugal pleasures i have needs madam <laughs> so maul begs him to go back to England. I don't really know what that would solve, but she's like, we gotta head back there. He says he can't because all of his wealth and his incestments, I mean, uh, sorry, investments, uh, are uh, here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, carry on. They fight so much and she behaves so weirdly that he threatens to put her in a madhouse. So the brother husband eventually signs a contract with Maul saying he will chill the f*** out if she finally tells him the truth. I love this thing. And he signs the contract and Maul finally tells him, hey, you're my brother. And he gets a brain fever <laughs> over it and attempts suicide. And that's all going to be real hard to explain at the coroner's incest uh, inquest. God, I, I keep well, making that mistake. Can we have the bit where he's just like, he kind of like turns red for a second. And oh, yeah. She's like, remember the contract? And he's like, <laughs> oh. Cheerfully withdrawn, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You, uh, you have written here that he remembers he is contractually obliged to mellow. <laughs> <laughs> they decide to amicably separate, and she decides to go back to England. So then she and the brother-husband decide, like, listen, we're just going to pretend that the other one has died, so we can each slip off into the night with no one being the wiser and marry again. She's the Banksy of marriage. Keep in mind, she is still married to the linen draper. Like, let, let's never, Heavens, let us not forget the linen draper. Let's never forget the linen draper in this. So Maul goes back to England. What about her kids? I don't know. She punted them over. Who gives a shit mountain? They're somewhere in Virginia. Who gives a fuck? She's back, baby. She's back in England. Uh, they should call it Incestia, not Virginia. You're trying to ride my coattails yep. here. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, I'll just keep just reading from the things I've read. Was written. that a virgin incest joke? Is that what you were? Yeah. Is that what you're going for? Okay. Mull, she's back in England, back at square one. She expects a valuable shipment of tobacco from Virginia. 
sent to be sent by her brother husband sort of her alimony payment. yeah exactly really. yeah yeah and the sale of that will tide her over for a new life however she goes to bristol where the good ship is destined the good ship no <laughs> tobacco when she goes to bristol where the good ship was destined she finds out that it was hit by a storm and that much of the cargo was damaged so all the cigarettes Ooh, anything worse than a wet cigarette. Yeah, well, I couldn't imagine. She's unfazed by this because... (laughs) Moles are great, isn't she? She's like, I'm far from being old. I'm always gay. Might as well just get back into the old race. So she decides to try her luck in the nearby resort of Bath. I love that Moles is basically... If for a good time graffiti on a bathroom wall became sentient... The Boghouse Miscellany returns. <laughs> Thank you. So, yeah, she goes to Bath, which is a resort town near Bristol. Oh, you say Bath and not Bath. Yes, I do. Good chat. She's in Bath. She's on the scene like a sex machine. She wants to find <laughs> a new opportunity, as she calls it, i.e. become a mistress. She soon meets a rich gentleman with a wife who is distempered in her head, oh. i.e. mad. Is he from Virginia, too? I want them all to be. <laughs> and she, well, anyway, it doesn't matter. She tells him she's a widow, and very quickly she's his kept woman. It's kind of like a friend, though. He's just like, hey, you're really nice. Be my, like, lady companion. But it's all strictly platonic. I'm married. Yes, they have a strange relationship. He goes into her bedroom, sometimes even her bed. But they never kiss or anything more. And they are naked, too. He's like, hey... Let me go slip into something more nothing. Well, and he, then he fails to pull the trigger. He explicitly says, uh, we're not going to have sex. If I, if I was naked in bed with you, I would as sacredly preserve your virtue as, as I would defend it if you were assaulted by a ravisher. And he and does. And he proves that, yeah. But, but he does for two years. They have two years of weird, naked, cuddling slumber parties. Two years! Soon, you know, one night they decide to get drunk. I don't know why. They've just been like doing puzzles until now. And after some follies, which I cannot name, Mold tells us, they have sex. I don't know what those follies were. Uh, I... hand stuff? <laughs> Alright. Um, strip bezik. Um, <laughs> soon, Mole is pregnant. She becomes a full-kept woman. Not a marriage klaxon, I think. Well, I ask that because it's almost a common law-wife situation, but obviously, I'll give it some sort of alternative marriage mistress, klaxon. Mistress klaxon. Mistress klaxon, okay. Hello, my name is Mistress klaxon. I'm a character in a Sheridan satire. <laughs> Maybe that'll be the klaxon. <laughs> um, something for the 18th century fans out there. Yeah, uh, this tested really well. More of this, please. <laughs> They also, this is where they um, start calling her Mistress Cleave, which apparently is 18th century slang for slut. His name is Cleave. In my version, there was a footnote saying that Cleave was 18th century slang for somebody with loose hmm. sexual morals. Maybe. Um, God, if only I knew somebody whose middle name was Cleave. If only, yeah. Yeah, Daniel Slut Jenkins Smith. That's what we call you around the department. Okay. <laughs> so, normal. Uh, 
No. It's a very it's unhealthy work get environment. Get HR. Yeah, <laughs> get them involved. Paul has a son with this guy. We are up to eight kids now for those keeping score at home. Um, and this is the first thing she says about any of her kids. And all she says is she thinks this particular kid is, quote, charming. So she and the dude are together for six years, and she has two more kids, up to ten now. How sad is it to have ten kids and you only like one of them? Sounds about right. She's just like, yeah, after the first time, it's just diminishing returns. Then her boyfriend guy, common-law husband, whatever you want to call him, he gets really sick, and he gets so sick that he almost dies. So he, he sort of goes off to London. She's is she still in Bath, presumably? And the doctors manage to save his life but at the very last minute, so he really is put through the ringer. And he has a bit of a deathbed repentance and decides that, you know what, he's found Jesus, he just can't do this adultery thing anymore. Can we have the quote? Sure, we can have whatever you want. My lover had been at the gates of death and at the very brink of eternity and it seems had been struck with due remorse. Even though he has this crazy wife that he hates and can't divorce and even though he and Maul have had a great life together, he, he'll pay for the kids, but she needs to get her mixtapes and her toothbrush and her hoodies and get the fuck out. They need to end their criminal correspondence. That's what he calls it. It was a crime, wasn't it? God, criminal correspondence makes it so much harder. Don't word it like that. She's getting all like, oh, yeah. Criminal <laughs> correspondence. She just never should have left him alone to recover on his sickbed. Yeah, she, it's only pleurisy. She knew, get over that. <laughs> she knew he would find Jesus, though. Just, mall baby, you fucked up. Yeah. Maul writes to him and she says, while she's devastated that he's breaking up with her, she's not going to stand in the way of his repentance and she hopes that one day she'll achieve the same level of spiritual rebirth and for just the low, low price of 50 pounds, she'll leave him in peace and go back to her family in Virginia where she'll be away from a life of temptation. She then tells us, the reader, that she's a dirty liar and she has no intention of going back to Virginia. This she, was indeed all a cheat. She, she genuinely had me here. I believed her lying ass. She said, quote, The business was to get this last 50 pounds of him, if possible, knowing well enough that it would be the last penny I was ever to expect. Also, can we just talk about six years together in which she has sort of relied on him financially for everything and she gets 50 quid. Oh, thank you, um, I'll finally be able to afford that nothing. I wasn't going to read this, but there is a measuring worth thing for 60 quid as well. Promo code but, shelf. In uh, just sort of standard inflation, it's £3,000. Let's go for the highest one. I won't bother with the middle ones. £709,500. Still not enough. So that's, the, that's its relative output value. Moll is single again, more or less. Um, she is still technically double married but to the linen draper and her brother yeah um daniel you know how i hate to reference austin powers too yeah on it's this never podcast. happened before um but cue the theme music i'm single again baby thankfully she has a bit of cash and some valuables although not enough to live comfortably in london because as we all know london's very expensive she tells us that nearly 20 years have passed since her first affair I did not look the better for my age, nor for my rambles to Virginia and back again. There will always be some difference between 5 and 20 and 2 and 40. So, she's old. She's getting old. Yeah, this is this is such a weird book where it's interrupted with, like, 
sort of social commentary social commentary and lists of dry goods and haberdashery in in sort of the middle of um, rampant carnality which is also like described in a really dry way very transactional terms and then uh, he purchased uh, two bolts of lace from me uh, a blowjob and (laughs) (laughs) Maul then meets a northern woman who is quote mighty sweet upon me queer reading hooray I do not Um, I mean yeah but also in the most nominal. Friend. Okay, keep going. Hang on to your asshole right, because right, okay. uh, we, she, it gets a little bit more explicit. So this woman talks Maul into moving up north. You should move north. Because <laughs> <laughs> London is too expensive. Now, Maul doesn't want to travel all that way with all of her money and valuables, you know, sort of strapped to the top of a buggy in case they're robbed, which is, you know, like a pretty realistic concern. She, she very wisely decides to not Beverly Hillbillies this bitch. So she's like, look. The one for the kids. <laughs> so Maul looks for an honest man in London to help her invest all of her stuff, basically. And she meets a bank clerk who she thinks is super honest, but he invites her over to his house at night to talk about her investments. And instead he spends the whole time talking about how his wife is a whore who is cuckolding him. A boring married bank clerk needs therapy? Meow, what a catch. So Maul, whose business meeting has turned into the world's worst Tinder date, is like, great, yeah, you're you're a cuckold, your wife's a whore, fine. Uh, Could we talk about putting my money into a stocks and shares ISA? Or, and the dude who has just completely fallen head over penis in love with Maul proposes that he get a divorce from his wife and marry Maul and maybe maybe we have some sex. Maul is like, I'm not falling for this one. Divorce your wife and then call me and we will see how serious you actually are about marrying me. I'll be up north. Bye. He's not really a clerk, is he? I think he's more like a banker. I've been waiting for this footnote. Yeah. I thought that was important to say because... But they call him a clerk, don't they? Yeah, I know, but I'm thinking, like, if you say clerk now, you think... He's like an investment banker, but yeah, they yeah. call him a clerk. Yeah. But the word clerk That speaks is to the measuring worth thing, doesn't it? That sense that, like, anybody... Like, clerk encompasses a banker. Because the economy's much poorer, but it's also much more unequal. You said this book wasn't actually sexy. Look at you getting I found a a way. measuring <laughs> clerk hard on. Yeah, Thank God. Yeah. Mole is wined and dined in Warrington... And Liverpool. Glamorous warring. Yeah. I need a quotation here. I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, please. I'm gonna do this now. She spends a lot of time with her lady friend who talked her into moving up north, who quote, caressed me with the utmost appearance of a sincere, undissembled affection. Queer reading. Yes, yes oh, that's it. There we girl. go. There it is. You know what, Mole, you're alright, you are. You're not like the other girls. Mole meets gentlemen and rich merchants and loads of Catholics. That's what language is good for, isn't it, Catholics? Soon, James brackets Jemmy, an attractive Irishman. Is there any other kind? I think there might be. (laughs) Turns up (laughs) on the scene. You can tell he's hot because she gave him a name. Yes, that's that's true. Walter Cleave, Jemmy... That's it, in terms of people with names in this book. In the film version, when he walks through the door, Careless Whisper would be played on a tin whistle. Ooh, that's classy, that. (laughs) Moll's new friend gushes about how rich Jemmy is, and he too brags about his estates outside Dublin. Moll is very excited to have met this rich, handsome, young Irishman, and forgets all about the Clark in London. I forgot about the Clark in London. 
Jeremy is just as excited to have met a rich gentlewoman. The pair very quickly get hitched in a Catholic ceremony. I was gonna say, that is an oxymoron. You cannot quickly get married in a Catholic ceremony. That shit's like three hours long. Right. I've been in a Catholic wedding. And yet Latin is such an economical language. <laughs> <laughs> also, bigamy much? No, let's, let's not forget. The linen draper, never forget the linen draper. Hashtag never forget the linen draper. It soon dawns upon Moll's new husband that she is not as rich as the rumors suggest. And she's been rumbled. Well, yeah, but he's like, he's got a revelation for her too. He's like, oh, darling, darling, Moll, I'm not, I'm not quite as rich as you <laughs> may have, may have been, as may have been suggested to you, may have been intimated to you, my darling. So their marriage is a double fraud. Moll, she's met her soulmate, I think. <laughs> they're both, they're both fraudsters. That's love, true love at last. So, oddly, they're kind of even more into each other after they realize they both scammed each other. You know, just game recognizes game. They have a lot of hot sex they talk about and just sort of spend a month going, this is so us. So they pool their money and try to figure out plans to stay together because they're, they're like, you know, actually we're really great together. But ultimately they're like, listen, Okay. We just, we don't have enough money. So they part ways and they sort of release each other informally from marriage. But I, I think this is really sweet because nowadays, Jemmy would just be like frantically on a forum typing in, how do I hide cryptocurrency from a woman? But instead, instead, he says, actually, if I earn any money in my life, when I die, I'm going to leave it to you because you are my magically magical, one true magical love. And then Jemmy leaves. Mull is devastated and she cries his name over and over again. Jemmy comes back briefly and says he could hear it 15 miles away, her screaming Jemmy. And so he's so moved by this, he rushes back to say a proper goodbye and just get all of that boinking out of their systems. So this is, Jane Eyre is very clearly working from this text. And they spent a really sexy week together, but eventually Jemmy's like, no, we really do have to part. Maul bounces back really quickly and she wonders if that London bank clerk guy is free yet and ready to get married. So she's the only person I know who is able to put divorce on her wedding registry. Um, and so, I mean, keep in mind, this is within like days of separating from her one true love, Jemmy. Um, <laughs> so she's kind of the marital equivalent of the phrase, walk it off. Unfortunately, Maul is pregnant. So <clears throat> child klaxon, this is number 11. She keeps the London bank clerk on the hook, just writing him a bunch of letters while his slow-ass divorce goes through, and this gives her enough time to go through an entire pregnancy, give birth, and get her figure back. This is one of my favorite bits, the bit about the midwife. She seeks out some kind of professional midwife who runs a kind of boarding house for pregnant women. And this is the bills of fare. We get the actual invoices. The midwife, she's gonna come back, isn't she? Mole's <laughs> like, it might be expected I should give some account of the wicked practices of this woman. I think it's implied that she's some kind of like, possibly a baby farmer. Possibly, it kind of sometimes seemed like she ran a bordello as well, wasn't yes. it? Yes. Yeah. So, just all around kind of... Shady. Shady person. So, Mole's like, this seems like the perfect moment in which to give birth to a child. Yeah. The clerk, he's back. <sighs> he writes to Mole to say that he successfully petitioned for the divorce of his wife. And here's got some good news for us all. A little good news, bad news, if we're being honest. <laughs> she unhappily destroyed herself thereafter. So Ooh. that's nice, isn't it? Yeah, the, the suicide of the clerk's wife. He's like, my darling 
come back down to the big smoke, the great wen, come back down to London and, and I'll meet you halfway. She and the landlady midwife managed to palm the baby off onto a nice family in Hartford. The baby went to live on a farm, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> she palms the baby off, quickly hops it to Cheshire to stage the reunion with her suitor, the Clark. So Moll and her fiancé, they reunite in an inn. It's incredibly moving, isn't it? He eagerly brandishes all of the divorce paperwork. Be still my beating heart. <laughs> to demonstrate that things are nice and legal. You know, nothing gets a lady hotter under the collar than paperwork. Oh, yeah, I know. <laughs> the clerk is touched and very excited to be marrying Moll. He, he kind of tears up a bit, doesn't he? Uh, She's clearly out of his league, like, oh, yeah, of physically. Course, yeah. Yeah. She's pretty moved, actually, and actually, and kind of even feels guilty about it. How little does he think that having divorced a whore, he's throwing himself into the arms of another. That's what Moll thinks. Oh, so. Moll. That he is going to marry one that has lain with two brothers and has had three children by her own brother. One that was born in Newgate, whose mother was a whore, and is now a transported thief. There's more. One who has lain with 13 men. I don't think there's been a full 13 men, has there? Maybe there has. And has had a child since he saw me. Well, when you put it like that, yeah, it sounds bad. Previous, previously on Malfoy. <laughs> <laughs> At least this guy is getting some gold standard horsemanship. Like, she knows no, yeah. her way if around want, a dick. Yeah, yeah. Turns out there's a parson staying at the inn. And a merry good sort of gentleman he was. I like that bit with the parson. They get married right there in the pub. Uh, Marriage clacks. Hooray. Last one is at the bar. The next day, Mol, something's going on. She's hungover. She's exhausted from her clerkly consummation. Gross! <laughs> Do you think he's just like, um, I think you'll be happy to find that I practice the algorithm method. <laughs> I practice the double entry bookkeeping. <laughs> <laughs> she blearily looks out of the window of the hotel room to see three men entering the inn opposite. Guess who one of them is? Our good friend, Jamie, mm. Moll's Lancashire husband. She kind of ducks down, doesn't she? <laughs> kind of, she's like, whoop, you know, like, uh, and successfully hides from him. And soon she sees him and his two associates leave town. <laughs> there's a great hue and cry in town because there's banditry afoot. Highwaymen. Um, so you're telling me that her ex is now a sexy bandito. <laughs> well, we don't know that. The town constable suspects that the three men seen in town earlier were the culprits. A mole goes out of her way to assure him that she's acquainted with one of them and he is an honest man. You could not have highlighted in a worse way what a fucking nerd her new squeeze is. Oh, I bet Jemmy has a great hat. God damn it, my timbers are getting shivered over here. <laughs> good, good, good highwayman vocab there. <laughs> you know, um, look, we, we, the highway, we lost out. The pirates out. of the land. We <laughs> lost out on the pirate adventure. Let me have this. Okay. The happy couple head down to London, and Moll is like, Now I seem landed in a safe harbour, after the stormy voyage of life past was at an end, and I began to be thankful for my deliverance. I sat many an hour by myself and wept over Aww. the remembrance of past follies and the dreadful extravagances of a wicked life. And sometimes I flattered myself that I had sincerely repented. She's with this boring Clark guy for five years, and they have two more kids. We're up to 13 now. When is the sweet release of menopause? Good question. She's uh, 47 that's what, now. That's what everyone's thinking. 
Daniel, I believe you. Yes, had a I've got question. my little thing that I want to say. Please. I. No, I stop it, please, you. please, stop it. I, um, <laughs> she she has a nice time with it. The Clark husband might be a little bit boring, but she does have a nice time with him. She lived an uninterrupted course of ease and content for five years, when a sudden blow from an almost here's the kicker invisible hand blasted all my happiness. Little economic historians out there. It's Adam Smith, isn't it? Adam Smith's invisible hand, the market. The Clark's finances, they've gone bust. You were so proud of that. I was very pleased with that. It's exciting to see that. I'm impressed with you right now. So her husband goes bankrupt and dies of despair because of it. You know, the pendulum swings, friend. So she wastes two more years watching her finances dwindle before she embarks on the part of the novel that I remember most. This is the only bit I remember really from my undergrad. Maul's Life of Crime. Now, I'm going to make a note here. We are actually only halfway through the book, but Daniel and I are going to breeze through the second half because a lot of it is very repetitive or very like small incidental things. Now, let's come up to my favorite bit. There's a... <laughs> it... It's quite a synoptic sort of style of writing overall, but this we get this very rare moment of uh, a phenomenological perspective uh, where Moll actually kind of pays attention to sort of reality. Wandering about, I knew not whither, I passed by an apothecary shop in Leadenhall Street. I like that too because it's a very ancient, <laughs> 18th century sort of half sentence. Whither, apothecary, Leadenhall. I saw lie on a stool a little bundle wrapped in a white cloth. Beyond it stood a maidservant with her back to it, looking up toward the top of the shop where the apothecary's apprentice, as I suppose, was standing upon the counter with his back also to the door. This was the bait, Mole tells us, and the devil as readily prompted me as if he had spoke. To take the bundle. <laughs> that's how the devil talks, isn't it? Do the Black Philip voice. What was that? You gotta be- Ooh, that's scary. You do that. Mole steals the bundle. She bolts through the streets in a state of confused acceleration. It was impossible to express all the horror of my soul while I did it. She kind of is disturbed, also pretty entertained. It's fun stealing things, as we all know. Mole's like, well, I guess I'm a thief now. And she escalates very quickly from a little five-finger discount to becoming Myra Hindley. So she's walking down the street and she sees... What's clearly... It's American Limit, Myra Hindley. This is for our British listeners. Yeah. Maul's walking down the street and she sees a little girl in expensive clothes wearing a necklace of gold beads. So Maul very sinisterly offers to escort the little girl home. And she leads her down a dark alley where she's able to pickpocket the necklace without the kid noticing. And then she contemplates murdering the child to make sure there are no loose ends. But ultimately, she can't go through with it. Just oh, that's nice. Yeah. Me, Maul is good egg. cannonballing into crime. <laughs> then, this might be my favorite part of the novel because it makes me so mad. I, I just, okay, let's just talk about it. Maul leans into the ins and outs of crime, and a lot of this revolves around people stealing fabric. And Maul talks about how once she is able to lift 50 yards of velvet. <laughs> 50 yards, Daniel. That is 150 feet of velvet, which was a very heavy, very thick material. Still is. How, how the f*** do you shoplift that? How do, how do you sneak that away? <laughs> Put up your sleeves or something. Uh, that is so impossibly heavy, you would need a smoke bomb and some David Blaine magic to get that. Well, is a very talented thief. 
And then this is where, again, the tone shifts and we start to get loads of lists of items that she steals and their value. So th this novel really leans into the sort of economic stuff. Like we, it's just full of like lists and prices. She falls in with a crowd of thieves who teach her how to pick pockets instead of just shoplifting. And it helps that Maul has a good suit of clothes from her previous marriage. So she can, she dresses up like a rich bitch and goes into wealthy crowds. And she's like, oh, if I'm pickpocketing somebody and I think I'm about to get caught, I just fall down and scream really loudly that someone's trying to pick my pocket to throw <laughs> off authorities. <laughs> Can we just briefly talk about how Moll's old midwife has become... She's turned pawnbroker. She's become mm. a fence. That's how Moll sells all of her stolen goods, isn't it? Because that woman becomes her sort of uh, crime boss. And Maul has, like, a ton of adventures, so Daniel and I are not going to cover all of them here. Just know that this would be a really great season of Cops. Got a bit of a fun interlude in which Maul's old tricks and her new life have a happy marriage. She goes to Bartholomew Fair. She flirts with a drunken old posho. That's what you do at Bartholomew Fair. That's standard practice. Yeah, it's tradition. He and Maul take a coach to a motel or whatever the kind of agency you version <laughs> of a motel is and Mole tells her that I by a little and a little yielded to everything so that in a word he did what he pleased with me I need say no more she's like don't scream my name though damn Cornelius I got warrants bitch exactly that's a direct quote in the, <laughs> in the coach back from their liaison the guy is so drunk that Mole can search him to a nicety. Can I ask how he was able to do what he pleased if he's that drunk? Well, maybe he got more drunk afterwards. That never occurred to me. Continue. She takes his gold watch, a silk purse of gold, his fine full bottom periwig. She stole his damn hair! Yeah, his <laughs> full bottom hair. Why, why has he got a wig for his bottom? <laughs> a merkin. Uh, and some silver French gloves. His sword and a fine snuff box. Classic sort of 18th century kit <laughs> there, isn't it? No, no man would be without those things <laughs> before leaving the house. She bolts. She feels no qualms about robbing a foolish drunk because such a man is worse than a lunatic. It's true. The next day, however, she feels a bit bad. She discovers he was an honest old married gentleman. Mm. Emphasis on gentleman. He's good class. He had slipped up just this once. Oh, oh so. did she steal his virginity yeah. too? <laughs> Mercy on him. He is in a sad pickle now. I didn't know that being in a pickle was that old a phrase. I love that. Yeah. That's charming. Mole meets him, passing herself off as a friend of the woman who robbed him. And he tells her how mortified he is. And he says, oh, I deserve to be robbed for me drunken adultery. Then they have sex again. <laughs> uh, <laughs> He pays her five guineas for her services. So, something tells me this was not his first rodeo. Yeah, uh, and they engage in, quote, that course, unquote, for a bit longer until after a year. Mistress Claxon, I guess? Uh, I don't know. Hello, my name is Mistress Claxon. He sort of ghosts her, whatever the uh, 18th century version of that. And so there was an end of that short scene of life, which added no great store to me, only to make more work for repentance. So I like Mold just like, she has all these ordeals and it's just like, surprise, just throw it on the old pile. <laughs> <laughs> so then Mold goes on more adventures. We're not going to get into all of them here. And she almost gets caught stealing some plate, but <laughs> the book turns into a courtroom drama for a hot five minutes where Mall, who <laughs> luckily has a spoon in her pocket, is like, <laughs> hey. so she's in this goldsmith shop 
And she's like, I'm here not to steal, but rather to see if he could make me some matching spoons. So it's a very, like, spoon ex machina sort of thing. Spoon, eh? There's just, there's there's a lot about spoons. I assumed that you would find this bit quite I boring. Find it, I find it funny. Oh, did you find it? I okay. like spoon stuff. Mal, she's getting sloppy. Uh, one day, she sees an open door to a house full of silk. She heads in and is immediately attacked by some wenches. <laughs> Two fiery dragons. Mal's done for. The cops are called. Whatever the version of the cops is back then. Bow Street Runners or something. She's carried to Newgate. That horrid place. I like this bit about entering Newgate. The hellish noise. The roaring, swearing and clamour. The stench and nastiness. And all the dreadful crowd of afflicting things that I saw there. Joined together to make the place seem an emblem of hell itself. And a kind of entrance to it. Who does Mal see there but all her ex-criminal buddies? And they're all laughing their heads off that she's finally fallen. So Mal starts going stir-crazy while awaiting her trial, where she's expecting the death sentence. Then one day, Mal is surprised to see our old heartthrob, yours and mine, Jemmy. Oh, Jemmy. I love that guy. Her Lancashire husband. He's here. Being escorted into prison. So his highwayman days have ended badly. But he really was a highwayman, though. We yeah, didn't even yeah. know that, right? Yeah, well, I mean, we sort of suspected it earlier. I didn't. I thought he was a good egg. Anyway, they meet up in prison, and they have a very moving reunion. Mal goes on trial. The judges, grave and mute, sentence her to death. <gasps> yeah, I know. A listener just dropped their tea. Uh, yeah, hopefully. Or else we're not doing our job right. A minister comes to the prison, you know, i.e. a vicar, not a government top official <laughs> <laughs> anyway a minister comes to the prison to talk god repentance all that sort of stuff with her he's a nice guy this honest friendly way of treating me unlocked all the sluices of my passions she says oh don't care for the word sluice <laughs> he broke into my very soul by it and i unraveled all the wickedness of my life to him in a word i gave him an abridgment of this whole story and i made a little joke here Could she not have done the same for us? It's quite a long novel. She repents, doesn't she? She finally repents. The minister's like, Mole is truly changed. I'm going to get her a reprieve. She's just going to be transported instead. Mole has a word with her old governess, who comes to visit her in jail. And the governess is like, all right, technically being transported means you're going to be an indentured servant in Virginia. But it's all right if you're rich, which Mole is. You can have a pretty cushy life out there in the colonies. So, <laughs> darling, I'll sail anywhere if you sail me first class. Exactly. I'll sail straight to hell. <laughs> so, Mole and her governess somehow wangle it that Jemmy will get transported with her to Virginia. There is a bit where Jemmy says that he would rather die out of <laughs> honour than get transported. But then Mole's like, come on, darling, wouldn't you rather live with me in Virginia rather than get hanged? And he's like, oh, well, I suppose if you put it that way. On the boat, they get on the boat. Mal is just so jammy, isn't she? She kind of manages to schmooze her way into being treated like a normal passenger on board. And uh, she and Jemmy, <laughs> they even dine with the captain. So it's all turned out pretty, pretty nicely for seri- serial criminal and adulterer Mal Flanders. Just the fucking cojones on this woman. Check out Marie Antoinette over there just being like, these poor motherfuckers in steerage don't even deserve to look at me. So Maul arrives in Virginia and I guess is just set free. We'll be happy in Roanoke, said no one before or since. Well, she goes to the Potomac, doesn't she? Daniel, could you tell me what state the Potomac is in? 
Well, isn't it on the border of a number uh, of states? Uh, uh, it's on the border of Virginia and to the north. Maryland. This is the best thing about Maryland. being in the UK is convincing people to say Maryland. Maul looks for her family. Um, you know, the old brother-husband and her mom and shit. And she finds out that her mother has died, but her brother-husband and her nephew-sons, with that brother-husband, are still alive. We also find out that one of her sons is named Humphrey, and I don't know why that is so <laughs> fucking funny to me, but here we are. Little Humphrey the son-nephew. <laughs> so she and Jemmy buy a plantation, which is quite the sweetheart deal, considering she was sentenced to death about 12 weeks ago. <laughs> So she eventually meets up with her son, Humphrey. They kind of gloss over all the incest parts of this. Yes, I was wondering that. Everything gets real uh, Steven Spielberg, glossy and sunset colored and Vaseline on the camera lens twinkly. And her son Humphrey gives her a second farm, which was apparently left to her by her dead mother, and a bunch of servants. So, you know, everything's coming up Flanders. Hooray. Maul's eyes turn into dollar signs, and she even starts wishing that she'd left Jemmy to rot in jail. <laughs> Poor Jemmy, that's terrible. Uh, that, this is, I was like, Ma, why are you losing us at the 11th hour? Come <laughs> on, man. So she backs down and then is like, but I love him really. So she spends some more time with Jemmy and they confess all of their past lives to each other. And apparently he's been on loads of cool adventures, but Ma, bless her, says, but that fucko can get his own book. So I'm not going to recount any of his adventures here. This is my story. She and Jemmy go back to England and live as wealthy Christians. She's cynical, isn't she? That's a great ending. What's the line? We went to England, where we resolved to spend the remainder of our years in sincere penitence for the wicked lives we have lived. By the way, we're really rich. The end. Oh, that was great fun, wasn't it? I enjoyed that very much. Here are other pages of the book. Every one of those I had to go through. Half of those are dog-eared. I'm slightly horrified by that. I You I, love dog eared I dog ear books. books. Sorry. Maybe one day I'll live in penitence for the wicked life I've led. So, I think about now we should be getting a casting. Casting? You want some casting, friend? I would like a full period drama, you know, biggest budget on sets and costumes and everything. But the dialogue... And the characters, full black exploitation film. This is an exploitative book. I would love to see Pam Greer done up all in her, you know, corsets and laces and things and people in periwigs, but... Full bottom wigs. I would just love to see this in the sort of the kit of any sort of prestige historical drama with black exploitation dialogue and actors. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Some analysis, please. I had a lot to say about this. I felt like, however entertaining we undoubtedly made the book seem. It's a very boring read. <laughs> I'm just going to keep saying that. I enjoyed reading it, but it's very boring. It's incredibly abstract and kind of synoptic in tone, isn't it? It's very emotionless, and there's no kind of, like, empirical data, really, apart from that one bit that I like. It's all about time taken, money gained or lost, laws broken, and just morality is something that's very external. Mol doesn't ever really feel very guilty. She's incredibly means to an end. I mean, what's going on with that? I really liked that about this book, especially because not very long after, we got gothic fiction, which is fixated really pruriently on powerless, sexy young girls, and it's just all very emotional and very whatever. Yeah. There's a lot of remorselessness and 
calculation on Maul's part, and she's really steering this ship. Like, no one even comes close. Like, yes, yeah, yeah. Jemmy doesn't even... Most of her husbands don't get names. We, like, this is this is Maul's show. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, she's always looking out for number one. She doesn't really have any sort of inner complexity because it's all just about survival, isn't it? So it's a really cynical story. But it's all, but she says explicitly that she has been forced to be that cynical because of course, we have social yeah. welfare. So if you are sort of turned off by this, she's like, well, friend, there's an alternative. Take care of your goddamn people. Well, maybe we should, uh, I don't know if we should talk about that a little bit, about the kind of the morality of the book. Because there is a preface that talks about morality and there is a bit at the end that briefly mentions morality where Defoe's like, or in fact Moll says this, doesn't she? The moral of my story is left to be gathered by the sense and judgment of the reader. I am not qualified to preach to them. Let the experience of one creature, completely wicked and completely miserable, be a storehouse, a useful warning to those that read. So the point is that, like, the book's not meant to, it's not didactic in a way that, like, Pamela is. It's just like, this is what criminals do, this is how society really is. You know, this is the bad, this is the kind of naked uh, truth of 18th century society. So, yeah, you're right. It is a social critique, isn't it? It's objective. I mean, it's, it's hard to ignore that because it opens on her saying, like, if you guys just took care of your vulnerable citizenry, we wouldn't have crime, mm, yeah, would we? Yeah. And I also love that Moll's second act and the second half of the book begins at 50. You never get this. Yeah, that's that's cool. amazing. Yeah. She's not really considered any the lesser because of it. She's like, okay, well, I'm not necessarily going to be prime, like, mistress or wife material, but I got other shit I can do. Yeah. And she still is, actually. She still, she becomes the mistress to that guy that she robs. Yeah. <laughs> she, she and Jemmy reunite. Like, she still, like, clearly has it going on, and I think that's cool. There are a ton of female networks in this, you know, so she has her mother, actually, in Virginia, her governess... Her, her many female friends, they have loads more conversations and far longer relationships than most of her romantic And ones. the marriage market stuff as well. Yeah. All of, those, all of her kind of, conf, not confidence, co, co-conspirators mm. on the marriage market. Yeah, no, you're definitely right that it... Mal has attributed a lot of, like, agency. It's not sort of stupid and moralistic in the same way that Pamela is. Is it worth even mentioning? I, I think it definitely is worth mentioning that this is based on real women, isn't it? That Defoe supposedly interviewed real criminals in Newgate Prison. That's cool. That he frames this as, like, sort of fact fiction that mm. Mol Flanders was a real woman obviously she wasn't but she I did write down the names of the real criminal where are they there's so much stuff here about tobacco production that I've <laughs> I can't find the actual women that it's supposedly based on wait 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 I can get this no no it's gone can we talk a bit about time yeah because it says at the end of the book that it's set in 1683 or no that it was written in 1683 so Moll must have been born in the early 17th century. So she lived through the Civil War. She lived through loads of, like, you know, regime change stuff, the interregnum. She lived through the Glorious Revolution. She lived through the Fire of London. She lived through the Great Plague. None of that stuff gets mentioned. It's all about just all history is told through the different boyfriends. Yeah, that is unusual. Well, but I but I like that where it's, it's, it's sort of that's a common trope of people who are very low down on the social ladder where it's like, I don't have time to it doesn't care make about a difference. politics. Yeah, it doesn't make a difference. It's rich people changing power. In fairness, though, I feel like you're obviously right that, yeah, whoever's on top doesn't really make a difference. But I think... In this period, anyway. <laughs> but but I think it does in the case of the Civil War because the point of that was that the whole country was, like, laying waste and loads of people were dying and stuff. I feel like... I'm also just like... I feel like... Isn't it when she's with her clerk 
or she's kind traveling of, it's around, around that, yeah, yeah. She's, there's all these armies going around and she doesn't make any reference to it it's funny there's no like we got waylaid by the roundheads or shit exactly, like that yeah. yeah I mean I thought that'd be quite cool but clearly Defoe doesn't give a shit but he, he wrote that Memoirs of a Cavalier, or whatever it's called, so he has written a Civil War narrative. He wrote the Journal of the Plague Year, so he has written a Great Plague narrative. So he, do, he is aware of these things and aware of their narrative potential, but he splits them between his works. He wrote a Memoir of a Pirate King, but we don't have the pirates in here. He's like, I'm saving that. You know, It's so odd the way he like passes this stuff out. I, I'd be interested to know when he wrote these things. I don't know if those are little like nods or allusions to his previous work of like, you want more of that? You want the pirate stuff? Buy my other book yeah, that's whatever. King of so, Pirates like, is 1720 and this is 1722. Oh, it's 22, so, yeah. yeah, so okay, alright, so maybe that's a little like little nod to my back catalogue. Apparently, apparently that was the thing that like everyone in their 1720s loved true crime. And they wanted to hear about pirates, they wanted to hear about highwaymen, and they wanted to hear about gentle women thieves. As a white woman in 2022, I can't possibly relate to loving true crime. <laughs> exactly, yeah, exactly. <laughs> wow, oh we were doing this in what, the 300 year anniversary? That's fun. Oh yeah, it didn't even occur to me how stupid I am. Can we talk about the parody of romantic traditions? Go on. Well, I was thinking that um, in our Sir Gawain and the Green Knight episode, there's a lot of sort of like kit that we talked about. And I wondered if Defoe's lists of stuff mm. are slightly in that tradition, if there's some sort of something from the chivalric to the picaresque to this. I like that. That's really weird because it seems capitalistic. It seems like ultimate, like really modern. But then you realize that there is this kind of literary hangover of just the aesthetic value of the mm. list. I, yeah, like the description of wealth is in Beowulf too, isn't it? Yes, just listing off nice stuff. And but also the um, the idea of courtship because there's a huge amount of courtship in things like Sir Gawain. But here it's completely economic rather than chivalric and honor-based. But it's still like, it's described in the same way but with different metrics, which I yeah. thought was really interesting. There are rules to social engagement in both texts, even if one is like feudal and the other is capitalistic. Well, I thought it kind of in a pickerer way, she's a little bit of a knight without honor, pursuing <laughs> a quest with no real end. Like she could never be rich enough or secure enough. And she serves only one lord, which is herself. Uh dubious anonymous writer requesting Don Quixote we've kind of already this she is a sort of quixotic figure isn't she half a knight half a picaro I don't want to um I don't want to uh, come across badly here but I was really uh, raring for a uh, much more saucy book than uh... I think we all were Daniel we, we all <laughs> enjoy a bit of sauciness now yeah and exactly then. yeah Slap and tickle. <laughs> <laughs> That's such a revolting phrase. Oh, now I'm going to have to call you that in one of our introductions. Yeah. Oh, slap and tickle over uh, here. So, there's another problem. <laughs> so, here is some advice, specifically for reading early 18th century novels. I find them to be kind of difficult in that they're very chatty, very conversational. So, sometimes I kind of have a hard time reading them like books we're used to reading nowadays. But I've, I kind of cracked it with Maul Flanders, and I, I read this in the voice of somebody next to you at the hair salon who won't shut up, like a gossip who just wants to tell you her life story, and that actually makes it a lot easier to digest. You might even want to read this aloud occasionally, because it is just so oral. Mm. It made it kind of easier if I was like, oh, this is this is an old bitch who won't shut up. Our clue to the next episode. So, we're back with MeasuringWorth.com and they have developed a special calculator just for our coverage they're of so this good, book. They're so good, aren't they? They're, so, they're such good guys. Promo code shelf. They are converting 
today's dollars into yams. <laughs> so please write into our email or tweet us. Subscribe. Thank you very much. We are very satisfied with the current level of engagement with the podcast. We don't want any more. If anything, I wouldn't mind a bit less. Okay. I am having to swim through reams, you know, 30 yards worth of velvet letters. It was 50. 50 yards worth of velvet letters, and I'm just getting sick of it. So please stop writing. Please. More reverse psychology there for yeah. them. Yeah, yeah. Did you just wink, wink. at me? You yeah. actually physically winked. Yeah. Like an old creep. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Save Me From My Shelf. Our music is The Overture to Don Giovanni by Mozart. And cover art is by Catherine Wu. Our thanks to Aston University's Centre for Critical Inquiry and to Society and Culture for funding the startup of this podcast. Contact us at savemefrommyshelf at gmail.com or at smfms underscore podcast on Twitter. And do not, I'm going to remind you, do not forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Do not forget. Thank you.